Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. We'll be reading in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I am I'm Rich Siri. I used to be one of the elders here, and now I get to do things like this, which I love. Not that I didn't love being elder. That probably didn't sound right. <laughs> um, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, What a gift it is to get to come before you once a week and do this. Lord, to open your word and have you speak to us. Lord, I pray this morning is that as we look at 1 Kings, that we would be encouraged um, and stirred that we might meet with you in the same way we meet with you on a Sunday morning, that we might do that every day of the week. Lord, I pray that you would just minister to our souls. And we give this time to you. In your name we pray, amen. So I don't know that I considered when we selected 1 Kings 19, that this seems like kind of an obscure passage of text. And, and it probably is for all intents and purposes. Um, but there are some jewels in the midst of it, and I want to dig those out this morning. Before we get into the digging, um, I'll share a story with you. I don't, I don't know what year this was. Um, I do know that 
Noah was about 10, and I think Micah, no, I'm sorry, Noah was about eight, and I think Micah was probably about five. And we were on a brief getaway in Huntsville, Alabama. And we went to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. And as we rock, walked around, um, we spotted a ride called the Moonshot. And it's supposed to simulate takeoff on a rocket. Um, and that would be something that I was interested in and the boys were interested in. Um, if you guys have met Micah, Micah is quiet and reserved and um, even when he's excited, there's not lots of emotion there. And we approached this ride and Noah and I saw it and it's like, okay, we're doing this. And Micah looked at it and thought, dad and brother are going, I wanna go too. We get over to it and at the base of it, I don't know if you guys can see this, yeah. At the base of it, you're looking up. It's 140 feet to the top. But what they don't tell you is it's two and a half second ride. Boom, you're there. It's four Gs of force on launch. It's two, two to three seconds of weightlessness at the top end. And then it's a one G free fall back to the ground. So it's all over in about six seconds. <laughs> But we thought, this is going to be fun. So I sit down. Um, I, Micah was on one side. Noah was on the other side. They strap you in. As they're strapping you in, they're doing the normal, like, warning routine. <clears throat> and part of the guy's spiel, as he's telling us, is if at any point during the ride something seems wrong, wave your hand and we will stop the ride. Well, it's over in six seconds, so it doesn't matter but wave your hand and we will stop the ride. And it's all smiles, we're sitting there, and when it takes off, the first thing Micah does is, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then when we hit the top and you go into that two to three seconds of weightlessness, he looks at me and he goes, it's over. And he smiles and then the bottom falls out and he's like, no! as we fall back to the ground. What they don't tell you also in the description is when you hit the bottom, there's this nice cushion of air that the whole ride kind of lands in and it throws you back up. But it doesn't throw you up far. We're only talking, it's 140 feet, so it probably throws you back up 60 feet. But you feel like, oh no, are we going again? <laughs> but it takes you on this roller coaster of emotion. Um, so, the reason I use that illustration is it's like, I don't want it to be that drastic of a roller coaster this morning, but my desire is to engage your emotions that way. Not because I want us to respond to God's word in an emotional way, but I want you to feel the weight of what Elijah's going through. And then I want you to take that and internalize it and apply it to where you're at. So, what we're going to look at is we read Elijah or 1 Kings 19. We're going to jump back a couple of chapters, and I want you guys to keep your Bibles open. <clears throat> we're going to put them up on the screen, but keep your Bibles open in case you want to make notes or highlight or underline. But we're going to talk about four battles that Elijah has been fighting prior to what we read in 
1 Kings 19, and then we're going to move beyond that. But as we look at those battles, maybe your day tomorrow doesn't involve swinging a sword. It might involve shuttling kids around endlessly. It might involve going to a job that is physically or mentally demanding all day. It might involve phone calls and emails and text messages late into the evening. But as we talk about each of the battles that Elijah faced, I want you to transpose those battles over the top of your own situation. I will also, as a disclaimer, say, I realize Elijah was a prophet of God, like he called down fire from heaven. But in the scheme of things, do you think God's any less interested in where we are at personally and what struggles we're facing? He's just as interested. So let's start with the first battle. I, want to paint a, I also want to paint a picture of um, who Elijah was as God's chosen servant. Um, I think our temptation is to look at someone like Elijah and think this guy is larger than life. He's really holy, must be really holy. He's prophet kind of guy. But what I want us to see this morning is that he was just like us and he had an extraordinary God. And where we met Elijah this morning in um, chapter 19 is already well into the story. And so I want to go back to chapter 16, verse 30. And this will kind of set the stage for where Elijah's at. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. Okay. And we're going to read verses 30 and 31. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. So here we meet Ahab. So we're introducing, I'm gonna introduce characters. We meet Ahab and we find out right off the bat, um, he is worse than all of the other kings before him. But not only that, he takes for himself a wife, Jezebel. We also meet her. And she leads him and the nation of Israel farther into the worship of Baal. So, who was Baal? Baal was the god of rain and fertility. Ancient people believed that if they worshipped him, he would care for their crops, which may be part of the reason, as we see later on in 1 Kings, and we're going to talk about this, that God targets rain, and he causes drought. Ancient people also sacrificed children to Baal, along with the god of Molech, Worship of the god Baal was incredibly perverse. And so the first battle that we see Elijah in this morning is Elijah comes to Ahab. And 
he's basically telling Ahab, there's not going to be any more rain. It's done. And it's going to be withheld. We also begin to see God's first strike at that false deity, Baal. Because if, if Baal can't control the rain, if God's in control of it, well, then Baal can't be real. So I want to also make sure that as we touch on each of these, I'm going to kind of move through them kind of fast, but I don't, um, it's easy to read these and not catch the gravity of what's going on. Think about what it would have taken to go to a king that you know to be evil. And if you're Elijah, that's probably not a simple task. You know you could be taking your life into your own hands. The guy's not a great guy. So, battle one. In the midst of the drought, God sends Elijah to a brook. And while he's at the brook, God allows him to drink from the brook and he feeds him by ravens. The brook dries up. God sends Elijah to a widow and she's instructed to care for him. And in the process, God cares for her and her son. But this begins the second battle. Eventually, her son falls ill. And if you're wanting to read this, um, this is also part of 1 Kings 18, I believe. Yeah. But her son falls ill while Elijah is there. And what does the widow do? She's seen God act. God has been feeding her from a jar of flour and a jar of oil and some water. And he's been feeding her and her son and Elijah and maybe even some of her family. But when her son falls ill, the first thing she does is she turns to Elijah and she blames Elijah and she asks him, have you come to remember my sin and bring my son to death? And when Elijah responds, you realize he is immediately engaged in another battle because he's, her son's dead. So Elijah carries her son upstairs, lays him in the bed, and he proceeds to pray, and then he lays down on him, and then he gets up, and there's still no life. And he prays, and he lays down, and he gets up, and there's still no life. And he prays the third time, and he lays down. And then the boy begins to breathe, and he gets up. Battle number two. Battle number three. In chapter 18, we see Elijah square off against 450 prophets of Baal. But he does it, this time, in the midst of the people of Israel. And I think there's a good word from Elijah in the midst of this that I think we need to hear. Go to chapter 18, verse 21. 18, verse 21. It says, <clears throat> And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God follow him. But if Baal, 
follow him. And the people did not answer. Do do we find ourselves as a culture, as a congregation even, limping between the God of this world and the true God, Yahweh? Are we limping between technology that promises more life and the God who actually gives life? Are we limping between the God of sexual pleasure and the God who provides infinite joy? Are we limping between the God of man's approval and Jesus' sacrifice that bought us the ultimate approval with God the Father? That's where Israel was. They couldn't decide. Where they were at was kind of good. They thought it wasn't near what God had promised. If you don't know the end of the story, here's a Cliff Notes version. God shows up. 450 prophets build an altar. They cut up their bowl and they lay it on the altar. And then they proceed for the next couple of hours to chant to God, to their God, Baal, cutting themselves, bleeding on the altar, stabbing themselves with spears, all in the midst of Elijah taunting them, asking if their God is asleep or using the restroom or on vacation. When Elijah has had enough, he says to the nation of Israel, come near, And then he builds an altar of 12 stones, one for each tribe. And as he sets the stones down, just like they had done multiple times throughout their history, he reminds them of who they are and their history with God. Elijah lays wood on the altar He cuts the bowl in four pieces. And in a God-sized demonstration of faith, he digs a moat around the altar. That wasn't normal. And then what he does is he sends them off with four jars to get water, and they bring four jars of water back, and he pours it all over the altar. He does this two more times. What was going on at that point? You guys remember it wasn't raining So four jars of water filled three times was not a small task. Not only were they in the midst of making a sacrifice, putting water on the altar was a sacrifice. And it might have been a bigger sacrifice than the bowl that he had put there. But Elijah's trying to make a point. And it's that God, Yahweh, is God. Then Elijah stops and he prays. And God sent fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dirt underneath the stones and 
every bit of water. You want to talk about a victory. Elijah should be on top, right? And then he looks at the people and he looks at those 450 prophets and he says, slaughter them. And they take them down and they kill 450 prophets. Battle won. Elijah immediately moves to the fourth battle. He turns his attention to Ahab and he says to Ahab, um, go and eat. It's going to rain. Be ready. And Elijah waits for the rain and there's a dialogue that goes on between him and one of his, and his servant. But eventually rain comes and it comes hard. And Ahab returns to his wife Jezebel and tells her about the slaughtering of the 450 prophets. And I'm sure they talk about the rain but it's hard to miss it. And Elijah's on to his final battle. This time it's with Jezebel. And all Jezebel does is threatens his life. Now, I can say that sounds like a small thing. She just threatens his life. He just killed 450 prophets of Baal. Like it would seem somebody threatening your life would kind of be second nature at that point, but it's not. Elijah's response is very different from the other three battles. And he runs. And this is where we found him this morning. Runs into the wilderness. My, my whole point in giving you all of that detail, I want you to feel the weight of doing battle. I want you to feel the weight of swinging the sword. I want you to feel, um, as we talk about transposing that into your life, where are you weary? First Kings 19.4. says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Do you ever find yourself like Elijah wanting to flee and leave it all behind? Does laying down underneath a tree because you're exhausted from swinging the sword sound good? There is rest. There's rest in the Lord. And what I hope that you see as we read on this morning is a God who understands our weariness and longs to meet our most basic needs and our deepest spiritual longings. As we move on, I want to point out that God uses our times of battle sometimes to prepare us and create in us a longing, a desire for alone time with him. God designed us to need restoration. That's why he made us to need sleep each night. It's also a reminder that we're not like him. 
He also created us to need restoration for our souls, which we find in the midst of meeting with him. So where we're going next is I want to talk about what Elijah finds when he gets alone. 1 Kings 19, verses 5 through 8. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Do you guys notice that God didn't say to Elijah, get up, you're fine. He didn't deal with him like that. Was God already present under the broom tree? Elijah didn't get there alone. God was already there. Did Elijah fall asleep? Did God let him fall asleep? Yeah. And then he woke him with a jar of water and bread baked over a fire. And I want, I want to put a bookmark here because we're going to come back to, there's a parallel story happening here and I want to come back to it later, but I want to mark it because this is the beginning of it. Um, after the disciples, after Jesus has risen from the grave, the disciples are waiting to see him a couple of times and they decide to go back to what they knew. They went fishing. And in the midst of fishing, they're tired. They fished all night. And as the story goes, Jesus is cooking them breakfast on the shore while they're out fishing and they're tired. So that's our bookmark. We're coming back to it. Have you ever been in that situation where you're at the extent of your emotions? Like you're at the extent of your own physical capability and somebody does something very simple and very kind and you just break down? Um, when... When someone shows us simple kindness in the midst of a struggle, it is um, really easy to feel cared for. And that's what God does here with Elijah. God gave him simple warm bread and a simple jar of water, nourishment for his body and water to quench his thirst. When we, when we talk about abiding in Christ, we, this is where it starts. Abiding in Christ is, starts here with allowing God to feed us and care for us. Now, if we can tell anything about Elijah in the battles that he encountered, he knew that his strength was not great enough for the battle. We always find Elijah like going to the Lord. 
do we ever um, feel like I've got enough strength for this battle? I think a lot of times I feel like I'm pretty self-sufficient. I got enough strength for this fight until the fight takes my feet out from under me. There's going to come a time where our strength is not sufficient for the battle and we realize that we need a savior. Okay, look back at 1 Kings 19. This time we're gonna go from verses nine to 14. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. When Elijah says, I only am left, what's he indicating? He thinks he's alone. Who was under the broom tree with him? God was. Satan has convinced him that he is alone and God is not really in control. We have the benefit of seeing the whole story. Elijah's not alone. And we're gonna see, I want us to try and put ourselves in that spot and then Let's go with Elijah and stand in the presence of the Lord and understand what it felt like to be there. Um, probably is just a good point. It says that Elijah went to Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. Um, one of the commentaries I was reading called it the ancient home of desert faith meaning this is where Israel met with God beforehand. When you're in a really hard spot 
when life's been rough and you long for those mountaintop experiences of the past. Have you ever been there? Have you been in that spot where it's like, I remember back to the way it was then and it's like, I long for that. Do you ever long to go back to those places where life seemed good or you felt loved or your relationship with the Lord seemed vibrant? Elijah's no different than you or I. And he knew what happened at Mount Sinai or Horeb. He knew God had met with Moses there. And for the most part, when he gets to the mountain, it looks the same. It looks like he has heard. And and God shows up in expected ways, but not all of them were the same. God shows up in wind and earthquake and fire, and then a whisper. Um, do you ever think, okay, maybe God knew what Elijah needed? Maybe God knew Elijah didn't need the wind and the fire and the earthquake, but he needed the whisper. J. Vernon McGee, um, if you ever had the chance to listen to this guy on the radio, it's, I love it. Um, he is fun to listen to. And he sums up Elijah at this point. And here's what he has to say. First of all, there was a great and strong wind that split the mountains and broke the rocks. Oh, did he love a good windstorm. Then the mountain rolled and shook under his feet. He loved it. He was that type of man. After the earthquake, there was a fire. After all, he was the man who brought fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. He liked that too. But wait a minute. God was not in the strong wind, nor the earthquake, nor the fire. After the fire came a still small voice. If there was one thing that Elijah did not like, it was a still small voice. I'm sure Elijah did not have that kind of voice. But he had to learn that God moves in a quiet way. How wonderful it is to see God moving in this way. Why do you think God chose to reveal himself to Elijah at this point in the story in the form of a small whisper? It says, and after the fire, the sound of a whisper. Um, the Hebrew, this is just a, an interesting note. The Hebrew translation for this says a gentle stillness. So I wanna use those words in place of a small whisper, gentle whisper. So it says, and after the fire, the sound of a gentle stillness. Is it hard to imagine a gentle stillness? I imagine it much like 5 a.m. on my porch. The birds are just starting to make the sound, but not much. It's quiet. It's really quiet. There might even be the remnant of a gentle wind on the side of my face, but it's not much. It's just peaceful. When God came to Elijah, he came to him like that. It was a gentle stillness. 
contrasted with the rat race he had been in of battle. I also want to contrast it with one other thing. Elijah came to the mountain knowing the story of Moses and the, and the nation of Israel at the mountain. Do you know how God spoke to Israel at the mountain? Back in Exodus 19, you don't have to turn there. God met with Israel for the first time at Mount Sinai or Horeb. But when God meets with Israel, it is with thunder and lightning and trumpets and a loud voice. And God tells us that he does it intentionally so that Israel can hear what is going on. Israel needed to hear. Only Elijah needed to hear at this point. And God was showing Elijah he needed to rest in him if he was going to complete the work that God was going to give him. I want to stop for a minute and talk about what, what do you think God wants us to take away from this interaction with Elijah? Because I think it would be it would be wrong to come to this and see Elijah meet with the Lord and not pay attention to what God's trying to do. I think one thing that's really clear at this point is God understands and desires to care for and minister to us in our weariness. Are you weary? God wants to meet you there. The second thing that I think is very clear is He's gentle. He's gentle. God's not going to go cowboy with our emotions and with where we're at. There's a phrase, um, a bruised reed he will not break. We might be bruised reeds. God is not going to break us. The third thing from this interaction, and this one will become apparent as we move on. God's still got work for Elijah to do. He is not done with Elijah, regardless of what Elijah thinks. But God's going to do the heavy lifting. So let's go back to that parallel story. Um, this is going to come out of John chapter 21 verses 15 to 19. So if you want to turn there, if not, it's going to be up on the screen. Um, okay. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I can't help but see that interaction between Peter and Jesus and see what God has just done with Elijah in caring for him underneath that tree and then meeting with him at the mountain and not feel loved and not feel like this is a God who understands where I'm at. Jesus had this conversation with Peter to restore him after he had denied knowing Christ three times at the crucifixion. But Jesus also uses this conversation to prepare Peter for the work that was to come in building the church. But that gentleness of Jesus looks so similar. Even coupled with the repetition where God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? God's asking Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's answer almost feels rehearsed. They've killed all your prophets. I'm the last one left. They seek my life too. Like he had run it over in his head so many times and God just keeps saying, what are you doing here? It's time for Elijah to go back to the work God has. Verses 15, we're back in Kings 19, verses 15 to 21. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay. I don't want to keep going yet. I want to stop and look at verse 18. It says, yet I will leave. Once again, at this point in the passage, the Hebrew sheds a little more light on it. And yet I will leave gets translated from, basically, I will keep for myself. 7,000. The word leave sounds a little passive. But I will keep sounds like God has a plan to be active in the keeping of his people from chasing after Baal. God's doing the work again. He's going to keep those 7,000, just like he has kept Elisha or Elijah. Okay, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. 
And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on his back. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. God gave Elijah three jobs, anoint Haziel, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha to be a prophet in your place. This story and the way it ends um, are part of the reason I love scripture because God's story um, is always true to real life. It's always true. Like God's story does not end with this beautiful resolution where everybody's happy. You know what we don't see? We don't ever see Elijah anoint Jehu or Haziel. And what he does with Elisha is kind of like, he doesn't anoint him. He throws his cloak on his back, which is the transfer of the role of prophet, but he doesn't anoint him. And I don't know why that is. Maybe Elijah wasn't completely there yet. He wasn't ready. But if you read on in 2 Kings, God accomplishes what he needed to accomplish with Jehu and Haziel. And it further emphasizes the fact that Elijah was just like us. We don't always obey all the way. When Elijah followed God's commands with Elisha and he cast the cloak upon him, Elisha knew what it meant. He knew he was taking the role of prophet. But beyond that, God was giving Elijah a companion. So what do we take away from this, from 1 Kings 19 in the way of application this morning? Four things. First one, set down your sword. Find places in your life where you're weary of swinging the sword and stop and look around for what God's doing. And then set down your sword. Second one, make space for rest in the Lord. I'm gonna give you the same counsel that I got from a guy um, years ago. And he said, find time to make, make time for the Lord in the midst of the day. Seems pretty simple. Um, I am one of those people who, it's like, I wanna schedule everything out. I want half an hour or an hour with the Lord in the morning for devotions. And, and sometimes I just can't. Like, I'm exhausted. And I would feel guilty for that for years. And this guy said, find five minutes in the middle of your day when you're feeling like that to walk away and just go spend time with the Lord. This translated for me into a, a lunchtime break where I went to the Galeen River and I would spend time reading my Bible, sometimes just sit there listening to the birds and water if I didn't feel like I could 
focus on the word. But I was just in God's presence. Ditch your phone, shut off your email. Just retreat. Five minutes. Third thing. This one's pretty self-explanatory. When God speaks, obey. I think this one, when you start practicing resting in the Lord, even for those short periods, God's going to catch your attention quicker. And there are going to be things in that gentle stillness that you hear and you will need to respond to. Practice obeying them. Fourth one, allow God to give you a companion to walk with. For those of us that have a spouse, that might be your spouse. But there are also going to be seasons where God sends other people along your way to walk with you. Walk alongside them. Allow them, through the help of God, to care for you and care for them. But allow God to give you a companion to walk with. It, this was not by design this morning, but it just so happens that in the course of our normal um, month, communion fell this week. And I think it is super fitting when we talk about resting in the Lord that we end this time with communion this morning. Um, we get a chance to stop and partake of the body and partake of the blood and celebrate what Christ did at the cross and do it in the midst of um, resting. We can sit and hold those and listen to the Lord this morning. So um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And <clears throat> if you're new with us, we practice an open communion. What we would ask is that um, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, it is okay just to abstain from taking communion this morning. But if Jesus Christ is Lord in your life, feel free to come. Um, and we'll invite our union or communion people to come forward. And what we're gonna do this morning is um, as the band starts just kind of playing in the background, um, feel free to um, spend some time quietly reflecting on Jesus' sacrifice. Reflect on what it bought for us. Reflect on the fact that we can rest in God's presence because he sacrificed his son for us. And then when you're ready, go ahead and get up and come forward and take the bread and take the cup. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.